Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. Welcome everyone to another NetSmart podcast. And today I um, have a guest, but also a friend. Dr. Denny Morrison. Many of you know him as Denny, and I've had the opportunity to know him for over 10 years now. Denny and I first connected candidly when I first joined uh, NetSmart and moved into this entirely new ecosystem. And he's been very instrumental in helping me understand the opportunity, the things I needed to learn, unlearn, and relearn. And candidly, that's part of what we're going to talk about today, because that never goes away. And uh, for those of you who know, I'm going to refer to Dr. Morrison as Denny because he's more of a friend. I think we all know him as Denny, but uh, very long tenured track record of instrumenting change and challenging status quo and really speaking to where we can be and the things that we need to be doing. And rather than me go into that, he's here with me right now, and I'll just ask him what he's up to. And then for those of you who can't see, you probably need to know why he's in an arm sling as well. So Denny, welcome. Thank you for joining. Looking forward to the conversation. And I guess let's begin with that. What are you up to? And then, you know, I think more important, why are you in an arm sling? <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been an interesting journey. I, uh, inter- and especially during your uh, intro, it's like I was re- reflecting. It's been, as you mentioned, it's been 10 years since we first met. And yeah. I, I mean, it's just the time has flown. I mean, it's just hard to believe that that's the case. But I do remember that when uh, when we first got together, because I was coming from the behavioral health side, you were coming from the medical side. Yep. And it was a really an interesting learning exchange going both both directions. Yeah. As you know, behavioral health is different, but it, uh, you know sometimes it's not as different as we think we are. <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, but I do think you know from my background, you know, I'm a psychologist by training. I ran a community mental health center for 13 years. Ran a research institute for four. And then joined uh, NetSmart as its first chief clinical officer, uh, and that was a I've been always been kind of like living at that intersection of clinical and technology. Yeah. Uh, when I ran the mental health center, we were a very early adopter for electronic health records. We went live, I think, in year in 2000 or so, and we were completely paperless. We won the Hems Davies Award for best implementation of an EHR based on a user interface that we wrote that was a, a shell, a front end right. for Psych Consult, the old Psych Consult that's now you know gone off out the pasture. So uh, I've you know kind of lived at that intersection of clinical and technology, and it's always I've always believed that the prudent application of technology can provide better care. That's really yeah. what's driven my life. And so kind of get this out of the way. The reason the reason I'm in a sling, I uh, had my shoulder replaced a few days ago. Um, and speaking of technology, I mean it's. Actually, I mean, things have changed so much from the last time I had a surgery done of any magnitude that my orthopedic surgeon said, I'm going to, you know, he says, I'm going to use this program that I'll show you some pictures. And I thought, okay, it's just this, you know, can patient information thing. No, what they do is they took my CAT scan, ran it through a software product that went through and showed him exactly everything he needed to do during the surgery, including what size screws he needed to attach the prostheses. So I've got these pictures. I'll send these to you offline, but they're, it's absolutely fascinating because it shows exactly how big this, the bone graft has to be, where, where to drill the holes, what angles, 
and this is based on my CAT scan. It's not right. it wasn't generic. It was my CAT scan. So anyway, let's get that out of the well, way. Well, I, one, thank you for joining us after that surgery. I know that is, I hear one of the most difficult things to recover from because you have to be very immobile. Um, yeah. And for us who like to be very mobile, I know you like riding bikes and being outdoors and those things. The test is going to be significant for you to actually adhere to the orders of staying in mobile, but just appreciate you right after that surgery joining Thanks. us. Um, and I didn't know that. And, you know, I'm humbled that you would take the time to do this. So oh, thank yeah. you very much. So well, no, yeah, really. And, and clearly you've talked to my wife about what the problem is going to be going forward and how to, you know, how to not do, not overdo. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to be, try, trying to be a good patient here. Well, there's always try. We'll see if it actually happens. <laughs> Um, well, let's, I think this is going to be a series of podcasts that we do, because uh, I think, you know, you and I love talking about some of the disruptions and opportunity that are out in the marketplace, and uh, what's challenging some of our communities, what the opportunities are, and maybe how we can better work together. And we really theme this around learn, unlearn, and relearn, because I think we need to baseline that piece. Uh, there's no question that we are going under significant amount of change, regardless of what ecosystem you're in. And I think in healthcare, even more, specifically human services, and as well as post-acute. And you've been so instrumental in helping cast the vision for where we need to go, that I think there's a couple of things that we do. Let's, let's talk through the eras today. And I'm going to use some Denny-isms, if you will. I, I didn't warn you about this, but I, I'm going to throw them out there. And I think we'll look at the three eras, where we've been, where we currently are, and where we're going. And let's start where we've been, because you've already mentioned you, you've been part of designing an application. Uh, we, we refer to it as healthcare IT. We call it uh, care record, EMRs, EHRs, those types of things. But one of the things, Denny, that I, since we first met that you talk about, and this is, I think is in the previous era, is one of the biggest challenges we had to overcome was terminal uniqueness. That's my Dennyism, And I think we got to continue to talk about while we're on the other side of that, I think there is some muscle memory that pulls us back to there. And you've been very much an advocate and proponent for, you know, candidly being, giving us our own prescription, if you will, our own therapeutic needs around hey, we need to address this because it's a problem and it's keeping us from moving forward. Do you mind talking about that previous era, what the challenges were, what we learned from that, what we unlearned from that, and what we need to continue learning from that? Yeah, you know, I, you know behavioral healthcare has been kind of like this, the kind of the laggard in terms of technology adoption compared to medical care and medical care followed, you know, an, an industry and business in terms of adoption, uh, technology adoption. Part of the driver or why behavioral healthcare took so long was that that issue of every provider organization thought they were different than every other one. Sometimes better, oftentimes they thought they were better, but they really did think that their work processes were just significantly different. And so whenever we would talk about technology implementation, often EHRs, but not just that, it was like, well, yeah, that's great for these other places, but that wouldn't work at my shop. Right. And it's like, really, really, you really think you're that different? And uh, and we saw that really, you know, my, the mental health center I ran, we were fortunate to have a research department within the, the mental health center that I um, picked up when I joined it. It was already there. I'd like to, I, and I just was fascinated that they did that. And so we were a really early adopter for implementing evidence-based protocols, which people weren't doing back then. 
Right. And, and that was, you know, forget about the technology, just from the standpoint of evidence-based protocols, people said we could, you, yeah, that works great in your organization, but it wouldn't work in mine. We can't do evidence-based protocols. Literally people said that. Right. And it's like, yeah, you can, you know, and, and I don't know why it was. And, and, and I'd be interested in your thoughts, Tom, did, if, if you saw anything similar to that on the medical side, when you were working on that, that side of the house. Well, I think, I mean, I can, I'll interject on that one. I think part of it is all systems that began with had a billing mindset in the beginning, exactly. and we all got stuck in that. And it really became more about billing and compliance. Now, at the end of the day, no margin, no mission. Everyone's pretty much familiar with that. But I would also argue no mission, no margin. They both go hand in hand. And what happened, and this was on the medical side and the hospital side as well, maybe even more so that, hey, we need to collect all this so that we can make sure that we're going to bill for all that. Now, on the hospital side or medical model side, that's probably more of a driver, even more than in human services. And because the payer mixes are so different, you know, on the medical side, very insurance based um, in our part of health. And you know, I was used to very high seeing very high collection rates. And in this part of healthcare, the whole mindset's different. We they, they can be very happy with half of that. You know what, we're doing it for the right reasons. Yes. But I think, Denny, the reason why is just the whole approach. Well, that system is meant for collecting and compliance, not for clinical outcomes. Now, the misstep that happened in the entire ecosystem is we brought the caregivers and the clinicians to the table last. Right. And then we couldn't figure out, hey, we developed this great system that you're going to input so much data, but the system was never about what it could do for them. And That's until right. we said, you know what, this is no longer about what you can do for the system and more about what the system can do for you, clinicians didn't really, caregivers only saw it as more tax, administrative tax, than something that can happen. So. That's my answer of why I think there was this muscle memory over, yeah, we don't do the evidence base. And really, you know, my in my mindset is it's, you know, evidence-based practice, practice-based evidence, and it's a continual loop. But that really didn't get interjected until the era that we're in now. Right. And um, so I think that's in that previous era, that was the big limitation. Yeah. And I do think that financial kind of roots of all these systems, I mean, and literally every one of them unless they've been developed in the past 10 years from scratch, right. were all financial systems that had clinical systems bolted onto them somehow. Yeah. I really do think that on, I think throughout the whole, the whole healthcare ecosystem and medical and behavioral health, I think when we first started implementing electronic health records, I think the vendors oversold them. And I don't mean that in a, in, in terms of um, like, you know, being kind of dis, uh, disreputable, I think they're, they were over-enthusiastic about what the EHRs could do for clinicians without regard to bringing those clinicians into the conversation and yeah. saying, Let's, what is your workflow like? I, I can remember being just, you know, an apostle about the value of electronic health records. And I was blinded to, because I was enthusiastic and right. I, thought, I think it will make the system better. But there really was that tax that, as you mentioned, that we really were making these clinicians become key punches, and they they griped about that. And I thought, oh, they're just resistant to change and all yeah. that. It was absolutely true. Well, and we oversold. I, I think you know, you're when yours and I's past first crossed. I mean, that was the whole mindset, and you being a part of the things that we're doing was 
we need to develop a system for clinicians by clinicians, and right. we needed to have a fundamental different approach. We're, we needed to disrupt status quo, and yeah. unless we disrupt status quo, then it was always going to be seen as this compliance or financial tax yeah. of, hey, this I'm just inputting this in, and at the end of the day, I'm not really getting the tools that I need to on how can I better care for this person. Now, you know, that's, that's what has me most excited where, where we're at. But I think to share with our audience the broader context, every ecosystem that digitized went through that. Um, banking went through that. Travel went through that. I, I remember in the travel industry, those were not great intuitive friendly systems. Uh, it was more about compliance and those types of things. Now, when you think about yours and I's travel experience, we can almost do everything self-serve where when travel first started, you had to have somebody in between just to book a flight because of the complexity that was seen in there. Now I can go on my iPhone or, or any phone and I could just type in what I wanted to do and book a ticket and be at the airport in 30 minutes and catch a flight. Yep. When you and I first entered the era, that was not possible yeah, <laughs> um, to go make that happen. System. Yes. Know, yeah. You look over the shoulder of your travel agent. I mean, it was like, it was like Sanskrit. You're typing in that system. Yeah, they were borderline programmers um, yeah, for, yeah. for things that they were doing. And I, and I just share that with everyone because every ecosystem has gone through this. Even the point of service in the hospitality industry or in retail. Um, you, know, when we, you know, when we grew up in the digitizing part of it, uh, there, was, there was never this notion of self-checkout. Uh, the systems just weren't capable of doing that. Yeah. Now, there isn't almost a store you go to that, you know, they're all trying to encourage and nudge you to that self-checkout line to be able to go do that. And, and the reality is we're seeing that in healthcare That's right. and in healthcare yeah. now. And I guess that brings us to the current era that we're in, Denny. And it really, and I'll use another um, um, Dennyism, uh, which is uh, at being at the intersection of, care and technology, and that's where innovation happens. And so would love to hear your thoughts about where you find us now, the things that, hey, really encouraging, and yet the work that we still need to do. Yeah, you know, I, your point about the, consumer, the, the customer checkout stuff, it really is affecting our industry. And I think what that, for us, what it means is we're moving from a clinician-centric world to a consumer-centric world. And we're seeing, you know, it's not just about the, the creature comforts of checkout, stuff like that. It's consumers and users having a say in their healthcare delivery and right. having a say in how they access healthcare information. And, you know, in this industry, particularly in the community behavioral health industry, we had this real parental model about people who had serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, that the, the role of the mental health center was to serve as a surrogate parent for them and yeah. help make decisions for them because they were unable to make them for themselves. So when we talk about consumer-directed care for people with serious mental illnesses, there was a huge pushback from the clinical base saying, oh, you, you can't expect them to do that. I mean, the very organ that they're expected to use to make judgment calls about their health care is what's impaired. So you can't expect them to do that. Well, you know, the peer movement and the recovery movement actually took that and flipped it on its head and says, look, you know, their whole, their, their motto is nothing about us without us, which right. is, I think an absolutely beautiful catchphrase. And I think that's true. You know, it's true for all of us in our own healthcare. I mean, my, my surgeon, I mean, he was very kind of interested in what I wanted to do. What were my goals? 
you know, how can we make this work for you that at the end of the day? And in fact, when I shopped around for surgeons, I wanted a surgeon that was going to help me recover and get back to doing triathlons. Right. And I had one surgeon who himself was a triathlete who said, well, you know, when you're done with the surgery, you can't compete anymore. You won't be able to lift more than 15 pounds. And it's like, no, that's not that's not right. So the point is that you know, it, what, as we move to this consumer directed healthcare, I think a lot of clinicians fear that the the consumer is going to drive healthcare. Right. And that's not the goal. The goal is to have an informed conversation, at, which is what you want when you go to your doctor. It's what I want, and it's what people with serious mental illnesses and all mental illnesses. I want they want to have a say in their healthcare. Yeah. That's and that's where we're going. And we're doing yeah. that both on the technology side and on the clinical side. Yeah, and I, I don't think it works without that. I mean, I think it's incomplete. Exactly. We all have to be participants in our care. Uh, it's not just show up and this is what you go do, but that's yeah. probably a big Marcus Welby, 1950s model. You know, but, you know, father knows best. He's going to yeah. tell me what I did. No, those days are gone. Yeah. yeah. A couple of things I want you to explain, because we got audience members who aren't always intimate with all our terminology. So mm-hmm. there's three things that you mentioned. Um, you know, the peer concept, recovery, and uh, nothing about us without us. Can you give just a brief explanation for each of those so that people who maybe are in a different ecosystem are like, what what did he mean by that? Yeah, Yeah, well, they're all intertwined. And what they really have to do with is um, that really, we've seen um, kind of the recovery movement really, I'm referring to it in the context of mental illness, but we know that when we talk about people who have substance use disorders, for example, you know, they rarely talk about themselves as recovered, right. recovery. Yeah. And it means they're, they're, taking, they're taking responsibility for their life and their addiction. And so the mental health movement has borrowed from that and said, look, you know, instead of a doctor telling me as, a, as somebody who has schizophrenia that I will never be able to go to college or I will never be, I will never be able to function, I'll have to have somebody, I have to live in a group home, the recovery movement has said, no, that's not the case. We want people who have serious mental illnesses have every right to be involved in their own health care and to think that recovery is possible. That right. just because I have a serious mental illness that is chronic and, and I will have it you know, forever, I still ought to be able to achieve the things that I want to achieve in my life that are realistic to achieve. And I want to say in that, that's right. what the recovery movement is about. And closely related to that is the peer movement in which in the mental health industry that we have seen that that notion of that people have the ability to recover and then saying, okay, why don't we take people who have done that and bring them in as peer counselors to people who currently are struggling with serious mental illness exactly the way that the addictions industry has. When I get some sobriety behind me, I can then sponsor somebody and I can help coach them on their journey of recovery, while right. the same through on the mental health side, we can get you know you get people who have who are peers who have have lived experience. That is, I have experience with mental illness. I can now be on the based on that and with some training, I can now help people yeah. who have a serious mental illness and help them on their journey. And that's really getting popular. Yeah, and I think it's the whole notion of better together. I mean, I know you've seen me use that tagline and those things that the way we're going to solve some of the challenges that we are faced with in our society, in our country, in this world is by pressing in to help one another. And we each bring perspectives. We need to respect and honor those perspectives. We also need to learn, unlearn, and um, relearn 
in that whole journey from them. Denny, I want to ask you, you know, one of the things I've learned since stepping into uh, this part of healthcare uh, over 10 years ago is that there, and you, you mentioned it, it's not recovered, it's recovery, that words have specific and important meaning. Why is that? That's in this part of healthcare, and nowhere have I seen the prioritization on words as I have anywhere else. Why is that so important? Can you help our audience understand that? Yeah, I, partly it's um, initially, I think it was kind of a knee-jerk reaction to behavioral healthcare being kind of the stepchild of healthcare. Right. I mean, I mean 20 years ago, this is the, the old days. Right. And, and, and so we got real specific meetings almost to a fault. You know, you've got, and you, you and I have joked about this, that there's this, there's this um, uh, importance that behavioral health care professionals put on degrees. And, and you, don't, you, you do see it somewhat with physicians on the medical side, but it's really important to people in the behavioral health industry. And, and so I think so is that, that that terminology of, of using it correctly is it, it's partly a holdover, but it's partly trying to make make sure we understand something. So for example, in the, in the mental health industry, you know, and I always think about, there's really three big buckets of people that get treatment in mental health. There are acute problems, chronic problems, and addictions. It's like, those are the three, big three. The acute problems are things like mild to moderate depression, mild to moderate anxiety. And in those cases, you should expect recovery where you're, you get, go in, you get treatment, you're done. You don't go back. You don't spend any of your life in, in mental health treatment. And, and that's the analog of a broken arm or a flu bug when you go to a medical profession. Right. But there are chronic illnesses like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, for which we do not have a cure yet. But you, with the right treatments and the right supports, you can live a full and happy life. Right. And the equivalent of that is diabetes, hypertension, uh, other medical illnesses that, for which we have no cure. Asthma. I'm an asthmatic. I'm going to have asthma my whole life. Right. But I... I live a full and happy life. Yeah. And that's that the equivalent of that in our industry is schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. But they're not death sentences like we used to think of them. I mean, right. you just think like they're, they're the end of your, if not your physical life, your social life. You're, yeah. you're not, you're not, it's not like that anymore. That's where that recovery model comes in. You can, you, you should be able to think about, I have, I happen to have schizophrenia, but I am still going to have a full life. And, and I, my disease has to be managed and I have to take medication. I might see a therapist, but if I have, if I have hypertension, I'm going to be taking medication. I'm going to be, right. you know, it's not, it's no different. And then addictions is a little bit different in that, you know, you've got this chemical substance with, and usually it's a chemical substance, but there are other addictions besides drugs and alcohol, like sexual addiction, gambling addiction, but, but those have a different flavor to them and they can be additive to the other two. Gotcha. So, that's the way I tend to categorize this, that many things that we treat, actually the majority, you shouldn't have to think about it as going into treatment forever. If you're, you know, only like nine, 10% of the people who have mental illnesses have a chronic disease like schizophrenia or bipolar, right. you know, the rest of them have these minor to moderate problems. Well, and I think, I mean, that's why the, the importance of words, understanding, I think they help define expectation. They also open doors. And, you know, the last 10 years, my personal perspective, we've seen more progress in defeating stigma, which may have been the biggest barrier from people to do exactly or to access care around the three threads that you just spoke about. Um, and, and really, 
uh, it's been a big barrier and in, in some demographics, it's, it's more so than others. And that could be economic, that could be our identity, that could be geographic where we've grown up from because we've, we've all been in the era of, oh, I'm not crazy to use a term that we work to stay away from because no one wanted that label. And, um, and so I think the goodness is we've seen significant progression around that. And it seems like in the U.S., I know I've shared with you, I've lived overseas a couple of times, and we seem to be uniquely challenged at times that the mind and the body are separate. We don't talk about those things together. And the good news is now we're starting to look at the whole person. So on that journey of stigma, one, I'd love to have you react to that. Have we made progress in the stigma? Um, and, And how do you see that? And then the second one, because I think it ties into that, you're also seeing a lot of name changes go on around providers across. Why is that and what's the importance of that? Because I think those two are tied together and it's the next evolution of us addressing stigma, if you will. Clarify that when you, the name changes for the- The name the, changes of organizations. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Health centers, mental health is uh, becoming New Day Horizons. I mean, you're yeah. seeing the name, and I've had people say, I've had people who aren't familiar with the ecosystem ask me, why, why is that happening and why is that important? Yeah. I thought well, it would be good for audience to hear from you why that's happening and why is that an important uh, thing that people are doing? First of all, I completely agree about the stigma. And we've seen, you know, there's many things that have helped that and not the least of which has been high profile athletes and professionals who mm. will go public. Uh, you know, yeah. Simone Biles is a great example during yes. the Olympics. You know, I mean, probably the best gymnast in history. I mean, just phenomenally talented, but, you know, she had some tough times and then she had to back out of various events at the, and, and took responsibility for that and said, look, my head is not in this. I mean, and you, it showed in her, in her performance, because as you know, at the elite level, the differentiators are mostly mental. The phys- they ha- all of them have access to the best physical training. So how you perform on that day has a lot to do with your mental status. And she she did a great job and just just she just won for saying, look, I, you know, I'm I'm not feeling right. My emotions are out of whack. And and she went public with that. A lot of people hear that and they go, my God, if this woman who's you know, right. super, you know, can have mental problems, or well, maybe it's okay if I do too. And we are seeing that. And I think it's a it's like a really a wonderful thing. Part of it is the judgment, you know, the, the part of stigma is a judgment. And, and part of it is people who carry those kind of unfortunate judgments about mental illness and particularly addiction is that because mental illness and um, addictions are things that are the extremes of stuff that we all experience. Everybody has been a little bit depressed. Everybody has been a little bit anxious. And when they hear about somebody who is who says, I am so depressed, I can't function. Right. They relate it to their own experience say, well, I've been depressed and I've been able to pull myself up and do what I need. And, and it's like, you don't get that this is what they're experiencing is nothing like what you've experienced. Right. You know, it's like the difference between a paper cut and an amputation, you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. They're both, they're both bloody, but they're not, there's nothing. That's where the, the yeah. ends. yes. Um, I've not same, heard that illustration before, but yes, I, that's, I may have to borrow that one. That's yes. yeah. That, and, and it's, but it's, it's an apt one, I think. And yeah. And, and especially for addiction. You know, as you know, this industry had we had to pass legislation to get parity for mental health and yeah. addiction treatment compared to healthcare because right. the payers didn't want to pay for those things. Right. 
And, and part of that is that, especially with addiction, is that, you know, they, the argument is, you know, this person is doing this to themselves. They're the ones who have chosen to pick up the drink and drink it and have it affect their lives. Yeah. And, this, and this nonsense about it's a disease is crazy because they, they're the ones who chose to drink it. Right. Well, let me tell you, you, when you look at the data for addiction, for, for alcoholism, asthma, hypertension, uh, and there's one other um, disease. When you look at the relapse rates and the causes of relapse, they're identical to addiction treatment. Yeah. That, you know, if an asthmatic doesn't use his inhaler or gets into, you know, into environments that are, that are dirty and they know they shouldn't, and they end up in an emergency room, how is that any different than a, an alcoholic who takes a drink and ends up in an emergency room? Well, I think the thing that people have been challenged with is understanding causation and correlation of things. And sometimes where we arrive at, they're not always binary, if you will. And you take into, and then we're going to talk about this in, the, in our next podcast, uh, when you start talking about social determinants of health or social economic statuses or social demographics and understanding those, those things impact our health. You can't talk about healthcare as a medical model or an acute only, that we have to bring up where we grew up, how we grew up, and even our parents and our family structure plays a big role within our healthcare system. So we're gonna save that because that's a big topic to unpack. I think proudly, I love that our community that we serve has been leading that effort before those were even buzz terms or acronyms. Yes. Um, looking yeah. at social workers have known this forever, and, and it's been a part of their <laughs> mindset and approach. And yeah, at times we, the rest of the world's waking up to this. And I'm looking at the rest of the ecosystem, like, well, you guys have been talking. You're just really humble about it, and this, you've known this since the dawn of time. But we'll pick that up at a later time. But if you could just briefly touch on why organizations are changing their names and what role that has to play in regards to maybe access and breaking stigma as well. Yeah, and, and in a way it's related to what we were just talking about because both of these are the de-siloing of healthcare. Right. You know, in, in one case, in the previous case you were talking about, and then we'll get into the social determinant stuff, it's getting out of that linear model of a medical, that there's a physical cause to this. Right. And now we're saying, well, there are psychosocial issues that are affecting that. That's a desilentation. Yeah. Well, yeah. this is the same thing. This is desiloing de from, you know, the head is over here and the body is over there. And we're, as we start bringing these together, it no longer makes sense for an organization to say, we are a community mental health center. We are a health center. We are. Yeah. And so, as you mentioned earlier, names matter. And and, they, and as they move, as these organizations convert into federally qualified health centers, or they start uh, building in medical care systems into their what was previously just a behavioral health system, and integrate those insight on site, right? That no longer makes sense to say, well, we're we're just a behavioral health system. And I yeah. think that's where the change in in naming is coming in, where they're saying we're trying to get that holistic approach and say we we're going to treat the whole person here. You know, uh, CBH, uh, uh, um, Certified Community Behavioral yeah. Health Center, CBHCs, are kind of a good reflection or, you know, probably a good example of that, where CCBHCs, when they get that designation, it doesn't really make sense anymore to say, well, we're a mental health center. I'm like, right. yeah, you're not, you are, but you're not just that anymore. Right. Thank God. 
That, right. that's, that's exactly where we need to well, go. Well, and I think in that has been some of the barriers of people saying, oh, that's not my issue. I'm more exactly. over here. But when you exactly. start looking at some of the comorbidities um, uh, and some of the challenges that people have, that they do lend themselves uh, sometimes to the mind. Uh, and that there is a correlation there. And I think changing those names, while some people are saying, why are you doing that? I think it's key and instrumental in changing the conversation and it's all part. Okay, we'll pick up on some of that later. There's a lot there. We could have 10 podcasts on this topic. There is a lot there. <laughs> um, and I wanna pick that up because I don't. I wanna do it justice in regards to, we gotta have some hard conversations and continue to challenge our own bias around some things. Yep. Uh, last thing that I really wanna talk about and that is the last era that we, that we see forthcoming. And this is something you've always done a wonderful job at. And as you start thinking about um, the various new technologies that are on the horizons, you know, it's very plausible that we're going to put people on Mars, living on Mars, um, here not too long. I know, jokingly, we talked about pervasive connectivity 10 years ago, and you're starting to see companies do pervasive connectivity that it's not just a cell phone, it can be via satellite or a balloon system and that you can be wired all the time. Now that has its own challenges that we need to, that we need to <laughs> but the point is technology is changing. The likelihood of my kids, if they choose to have kids driving is probably pretty low because they'll just hop in their autonomous car or do we each need to have our own car if we can just have cars that are out there? Big data, uh, you, we talked about being able to use predictive analytics or machine learning or artificial intelligence come to the table. So Denny, as you look forward, the last era we knew we need to change from, you and I were joking before we started, the conversation used to be reports and about the next reports. We just talked about the intersection. So we moved from a financial compliance era to a uh, intersection where uh, consumers and caregivers were been at the forefront. What do you see if we went 10, 10, 15 years ahead? Where do you see we're going? What's going to happen? Give us your yeah. predictions. Yeah, I think there's in the short term, like in the windshield level, you know, AI is in, is kind of like the, the big driver right now. Right. And I think the American Medical Association has promoted this concept and I like it a lot where they say that we really shouldn't be calling it artificial intelligence, we should be calling it augmented intelligence. Because particularly for behavioral, or well, for healthcare professionals, the goal is, it's like a, a clinical decision support system on yeah. steroids. The goal is to give them better and more information that's more timely, relevant, deeper dive, and you know, giving, giving that information to them and helping them make better decisions today. Yeah, I want to interrupt on that because I couldn't agree with you more. I think one I think maybe one of the tragedies that's happening is we're giving this perception that human beings aren't going to be at that decision-making process exactly. anymore. And exactly. one of the barbaric things that we must stop is this notion in term of second opinion. It is so analog the fact that we are saying you need to go talk to one more person to get a different perspective, when the technology exists to query your DNA, your history, your likenesses, your medications against a million different opinions to get to a better outcome, that's what that really means is how can we correlate everything we know about you against possibilities so that that caregiver is equipped to make the right decision. Another Dennyism is the shelf life of what it takes to get 
research to the field. So if you can bridge that in, because uh, I you've always said it's about 11 years, I believe, right? right? And I hope in this next era, we're going to shrink that. And that's really what, when people are talking about predictive analytics or artificial intelligence, that's what they're really saying. We're going to equip that caregiver in a way we've only dreamed that was possible. So sorry to interrupt any bit. Oh. I, I wanted to take a moment to our audience. We got to stop the misunderstanding of that word because we're not talking about replacing human beings in decision right. process. We're talking about give, equipping them more and better. Yeah. Well, and, and I, and in addition to that, Tom, I think the, the upside of this is to help clinicians do what only clinicians can do and get this other nonsense off their, their yeah. table. That's one of the selling points is this is not technology per se, but that's one of the selling points for involving peers in the healthcare process, because with the data are pretty clear that peers can do things that professional clinicians cannot, and they can help in ways that professional clinicians cannot. But clinicians often get similarly threatened by the introduction of these people who, yeah. who not have a degree behind their name, but they've got a lived experience that I, as a clinician, do not have. Right. And it's the same thing with technology. It's like, that, that's why I think the term artificial intelligence needs to go away. I agree. You and I are going to start that campaign. That's another part. Yeah, I, I just, I, I, I really do like the augmented intelligence yes. concept. It's the right thing. You know, because like, you know, if you look at radiology, dermatology, microbiology, that's where image recognition is really playing a strong role. Absolutely. Is that cell cancerous or not on a screen? Is that shoulder broken or not? You know, that, that lets a radiologist focus on things that really only he or she can do. Well, and, and the things that they love to do, people yeah. didn't go to school. I have some family members going to medical school right now, uh, one in social work, uh, another one in the uh, medical uh, field, uh, more physical care uh, field. And the thing that partly is I'm excited for them, but I also hope they get to enjoy a new era where they get to do what they love versus being burdened with some of the things that are just about compliance and billing, yeah. that those things technology can help address those things. I'm not saying they need to go away. We can just do better. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, I, I can't remember if we've talked about this or not, but I think, you know, that there are technologies out there now for behavioral health care that will write the progress note for you automatically based on a, a, a verbal, just, just a, a recorded um, session. Yeah. Writes the progress note for you. Right. Now, and, and best practices that should not be considered as the note a clinician ought to edit that. But the, the load that that takes off of clinicians, oh, yes. I mean, they, you know, you know, you and I both know they hate having to do the documentation, which is, as you mentioned, compliance and financial purposes. Primarily. And accountability. I mean, those are, yeah. we're not, I don't, you and I are not saying that those, we're not saying that they're not justified, but when they take away from what the primary goal is, we got to find a better way. Right. That's not, nobody got into healthcare because they wanted to document. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can, I can assure you, I don't make very many absolute statements, but I can tell you that one's true. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I, hear, I, I can't, I'm, I'm sensing a lot of virtual applause right now. So, <laughs> okay, let's, so what other, let's, let's be, yeah. before we land here, um, give me some of your other far reaching ideas. Something yeah, that I think, is I think we are going to see kind of the use of uh, DNA and other technologies to help make better predictions. And I think, you know, that's going to be a little bit further out. I mean, we got the technology now, but it's not integrated. 
but you you can do they can do a full you know DNA scan on a, on a desktop now for with a device you know that costs you know eight hundred bucks and right. you can do private practitioner's office and that ought to be part of that that standard scan you know we there has been some work done where it, by looking at certain aspects of um, the DNA code you can predict what medications are going to be more effective for right. you so we can get you know we can get out of that decision tree where you know, best practice says, okay, I'm going to start Tom on drug drug X, and if that fails, then I'm going to start drug them on starting with drug Y. But if we do, you know, an analysis of your DNA, we might know you'll never respond to drug X. Right. Let's just skip that. Let's, yeah. We don't need to do that. And so that's you know, we have we have you know people you and I know, you know, MHC Mental Health Center in Denver has been doing that for a long time. Right. They're using that technology. Well, and I think the the term, and I'll put it out there, is personalized medicine. Exactly. That's exactly. I mean, we're going to get we're going to look back at one day and say the notion of having a prescription that was universal for everyone besides dosage is going to be mind boggling to people. Right. Uh, because this is where when people start talking about uh, the 3D printing technology and those types of things, there's no reason why that can't happen in medications right. and based upon your metabolism based upon your DNA, uh, based upon your tolerances, you'll leave with a personalized prescription that is unique to you. And the whole role of pharmacy is going to change from controlled dispensing and those things to more of um, real-time manufacturing of that medication. I think that's going to happen this decade. I know it's happening in a small scale. It's going to happen in a massive scale. And I'll even think you'll see some of the pharmacies It'll be no different. And we've seen this in dental industry because I've had people say, Tom, that's not going to happen. And I was going, well, it used to be thought that in dentistry, you always were going to have to send off to have a crown made. Right. Now they have 3D printing machines that make your crown on site while you wait in the chair and they can happen real time. And I think the reason why I always use these different examples, and you're going to see this in car manufacturing as well. I think the pandemic has changed car manufacturing. Cars will be shipped colorless to manufacture, and they'll be painted as demand wants yeah. them to. Why? Why not? You yeah, know? I mean, and, and it's going to be more cost affordable to do that instead of having an inventory of maybe cars that didn't the color scheme didn't work out the way that they thought. So I, no, I just I share yeah. this notion that everything we know about our healthcare ecosystem, it we it used to take maybe a few decades to see that change. We're going to see more change in the next 10 years than most of us have seen in our collective lifetime. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Well, you you know, when you look at that model that we currently have, like prescriptions is a great example. Yeah. You know, what we're, you know, that whole model is a statistical model. It's what works best for most. You look at this, look at the data and we say, okay, 50%, you got this thing called the TD50, the therapeutic dose 50%. That, that when they test drugs, they say, okay, half of the population we tested this on did well at 10 milligrams. That's going to be the standard dose for that. But that's a bell curve. You know, yes. And, and so, you know, so, so as opposed to trying to do what works best for most, we're going to say what works best for Tom. You yeah. Know? And that's where that, okay, Tom, you know, we re- analyze his DNA. We look at these, these other factors. Okay, we're going to manufacture this drug and it's going to be different than if we had used that statistical model. Yeah. Because it's, because we don't have to do that. And you know what's interesting to me, and just anecdotally, 
this is in pharmacy. This is full circle. You know, that's what a pharmacy used to. You go. Yeah, to the you're right. I didn't think about it. <laughs> you're <laughs> right. I never thought no. about that. It's we changed the pharmacies to pharmacies. Yeah, yeah you're you're yeah, spot on. Like tincture yeah. of codeine. You know. Well, and that's the that's the whole icon of the pharmacy, right? Bar the bowl and the grinder. It's the way things used to be. So. Yeah. Yeah, so okay. Well. Denny, we've gone we've gone longer than I knew we were going to do this, and I, I said we weren't going to do it. So I'm going to come in for a landing. But what I want I want to end with a couple of things to that person who's listening right now, and they're saying, "Man, I really appreciate the things that Denny said. We still have change that we got to do. We are still kind of hold, holding on to some things that we got to let go of. There's this new pieces going on. You've been in their seat. You've been in it as a caregiver. You've been running from an organization. What encouragement or guidance or thoughts would you give them as they plan for the next five years? What would you tell them that they need to be doing? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. One is one is is to be flexible. You know, things are going to change. And and I and I think this industry has a reputation of not being very flexible when it comes to change. It's it's hard to get clinicians who are interestingly in the change management business to change themselves when new things come along. So to not, don't be threatened by that. That's, these are things like the point we made earlier. These are things, these technologies are going to help you be a better clinician tomorrow than you are today. But it, it does mean changing from the way you, you were trained in college. I mean, I, you know, I didn't get any of this stuff in right. school. You know, none of us do. And, and so that's one. The other is to think outside that silo that you were trained in. If you're a social worker, you're a psychologist, Remember that you are just one piece of this and that the person sitting in front of you can benefit from you working collaboratively with a physical therapist or a kinesiologist or a nurse and think about whole person care, not, you know, you have to focus on what your specialty right. is. You've got to think beyond that and not just say, well, yeah, you've got a physical problem, but that's not my problem. So I got, you know, go call, go call. Let's, let's pull together a team of right. multi professionals to help that yeah. person and forget about the diagnosis and think about the problem as you know as the, what the person is experiencing not don't get caught up in a diagnosis yeah. particularly for behavioral health care and I, I think what I hear you saying is nowhere nowhere more time in history has collaboration been more important yeah. that we yeah. need every persona at the table and so many times when organizations, Oh, well, that's the IT group, or we're going to create this, you know, team over here. But it didn't necessarily have representation from everywhere, and that that is part of the mistake that I think that happened in the broader ecosystem. Oh, that's IT. IT is going to just implement an application, and we've learned, you know, we know that you got to have every everybody needs a seat at the table. Um, the caregivers, clinicians, um, administration, the operational, financial billing, because these systems are dependent upon each other to work extraordinarily well. And each stakeholder, their perspective or persona is absolutely valid, but each influences the others. And we've got to, you know, that's one of the things I tell people, the number one thing you can do is have a great cross-representation team at the table who is designing not only for today, but for tomorrow. Okay, Denny, last thing, and this could be anything. What's a book, movie, art, or something that you've, that you've come across with lately that you would recommend to someone to, uh, to maybe inspire them or to challenge status quo? Hmm. Could be that's, anything. That doesn't have to be related to healthcare. 
Yeah, well, there, there's one. I, you know, I just finished some uh, some blogs for Nesbart on the the whole peer movement and right and 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 I drew a lot from the addictions. And there's a book called Slaying the Dragon, which is the history of addiction treatment in the United States. Okay, it is a just a fascinating read because it talks about how we have used peers in healthcare, particularly in addiction treatment for a very long time. And it talks about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous and how that came about, but that really wasn't the first iteration of that. So if, uh, that's, a, that's one I just, just finished recently. Okay. Absolutely fascinating. Well, I will include that in the show notes. And Denny, I just wanted to end with thank you on a personal level and on a professional level. Uh, I'm able to pursue the things that I love doing, which is a lot of what we're talking about um, in regards to how can we help uh, those who we serve, cause and community, do the things that they're passionate about even better. Um, and that includes technology and systems. Professionally, I also wanna thank you for the continued work that you've done, doing, and I know you're gonna continue to do, to shape an ecosystem for the greater good. Um, that's to Dr. Morrison, I know, who is very passionate about making sure that we have the conversations that we need to be having, not just the ones that we're comfortable with having. And to our audience, thank you for joining us today. Denny and I will be back uh, again, um, and we'll, we're going to tackle some of these other topics. Uh, we may bring a couple of guests on as we talk through those. And continue bringing your ideas. Today was a result of suggestions and feedback of saying, hey, we'd love to hear this talk, talk about. And I immediately thought, I need to get Dr. Morrison to the table and we need to have a conversation. And he did so after his surgery as he sits here in his arm sling. And that's what we want to do. We just want to take the things that we've learned along the way, some of them that we're learning, some that we're unlearning and some that we're relearning so that we can share that knowledge with everyone so we can all help us in a pursuit that finds us more alike than not. Until next time, thank you. At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.